Welcome to the Open Pantry Podcast for yet another episode. I'm your host, Sean DeVries, as always. Thanks for joining me. This is a great conversation that I had with Frank Wilden uh, a couple of weeks ago, and we talked about rentals and leasing and the amount of turnover that's actually happening in venues and people who are really losing a lot of money. These are some really good tips that you'll hear now from Frank and from myself about what you can do to make sure that you don't sign the wrong lease and get the concept right for the venue that you want to do. Hope you enjoy it and let me know what you think. All right, welcome to the Open Pantry Podcast. Francis Wilden, thank you for coming back for another episode of the Open Pantry Podcast. Great to have you back. Thank you, Sean. Nice to be back with you again. Now, we talked the other day over the phone around ego and hospitality, but we also talked about the turnover of venues in hospitality and those that can't finish their leases and new sites that pop up in that existing site to hopefully try a new thing. I think a new thing pretty much the same thing that there's there's definitely a lot of businesses which turn over too quickly in those sites and they should be able to finish their leases with your depth of experience in the hospital industry for the last couple of decades I thought it'd be pertinent to have you on the podcast to really talk about what a, a couple of those challenges and, and, and ideas reasons why those businesses actually fail what do well, you think it's a big question. Yeah, look, there's a number of layers to that. Mm. And I think that, um, firstly, restaurateurs that have enjoyed any level of success normally quickly get pretty confident about that. Yes. And sometimes that confidence can be misplaced. Yes. And it's not far before, or not long rather, before it moves beyond confidence into hubris. Right. And people develop a certain sense of invincibility around their capabilities and What's it's possible and the level what's possible and the level of success that they might be able to achieve. Mm. Now I've always said that with restaurants it's it's hard enough to get the first one right. Yeah, most definitely. Um, and often getting that first venue right can simply be a matter of being in the right place at the right time and you've had a really great idea. Mm. When you think about opening a second venue, you've then got to ask yourself the question, what are the chances of being able to tick all of those boxes yet again? Yes. So there's so many elements that go together to making up a successful venue, and it's extremely difficult to get one right, let alone two. Mm. I often remind people, uh, once they start talking about expansion, I say, well, you've got one venue and it's worked well, you've got one in a row. Yes, yeah, exactly. You've got one in a row. Mm -hmm. Now, if anything, the second one's going to be more difficult Yes. because that great idea that you've been saving up, all that human resource pool of talent that you've been saving up, waiting for the right opportunity and site to present itself. Mm -hmm. We have used that up. Yes. Yep. Um, and even if the money's there, which is a challenge in the current climate because of difficulties around business finance, etc., mm. you've still got to address those other two boxes or be able to tick those other two boxes. Mm -hmm. So I think that the second venue is probably harder than the first. Right particularly if you're looking to do a concept which is different to your first concept. Because then it's not like you're trying to leverage off the existing model that you have with the food, the structure, you understand the costs, all the operational practices, etc. Yes. But if one day you've got a hamburger joint and the next day you want to open up a Chinese restaurant, yes. um, there should be... Uh, warning light, uh, warning sirens, and warning lights going off everywhere about that. Sure. 
So it's really a matter of getting plenty of help. And, and I think the other thing, Sean, about the current climate is that, I mean, we're certainly seeing lots of restaurants, cafes, etc., closing. Yes. And there's lots of commercial space out there for lease. Yes. Um, often um, deals very favourable, at least on the surface deals, can be done to take over venues with plant and equipment in place. Mm-hmm. And it's very easy to go and look at these opportunities for rose-coloured glasses. Of course. And, and hence, when you're evaluating it, it's easy to sort of think, well, yeah, the last guy didn't have great service, he didn't have good food, he, yep. he didn't have yada, yada, yada. Marketing wasn't right. All of those sorts of mm-hmm. things. Um, and to believe in the fact that you can do better. Now, it may well be that you can deliver better food, better service, etc., etc. Yes. And you may well still fail. Yeah, yeah. So, the, so it's just critical at that initial point of looking at a new venue that you really do extensive due diligence um, as to why the previous operator failed. So do you think maybe so let's say I'm in a I'm in a good cafe venue, I'm doing forty to fifty thousand dollars turnover a week and I've had that turnover for twelve months so it's indicative of what what is going to continue to happen. And I'm looking to go to a second venue. Do you think the mistake that most cafe owners, restaurant owners make is they try and teach they try and use that second brand as the extension of the first brand and don't look at it in its simplistic uh, only singularity form. So they don't look at it as, as almost like they're recreating another brand because that's essentially what they have to do to create success again. Yeah, look, it's, it, it's a good question and certainly you can make arguments for and against. Yes, true. Um, whether you take a proven concept into another location or not, uh, a lot of that will depend, I think, on just how universal that actual concept is. Sure. So if you're talking about um, those everyday concepts of, you know, good coffee, yep. cake, mm-hmm. relaxed cafe, etc., mm-hmm. a lot of the fundamentals behind making those things successful stay the same from one site to another. True. It's important to understand that maybe in the success of your first site precisely what those are mm-hmm. and that may well include significantly the physical location yes right? yep. as well as the actual commercial terms surrounding your lease mm-hmm. Right? Mm-hmm. Um, it may also be that to take the example you've given of the cafe um, there's so much construction going on in the city of Melbourne at the moment, that yes. if you've got a cafe mm. uh, which is able to feed tradies, yes. it's highly likely that you're, you would have seen a significant stimulus to trade mm. just from the patronage of those tradies being on site. Most definitely. Right? With the next side that you're looking at, does that have the same level of activity around it? Mm. Right? Mm-hmm. It may well not. Mm-hmm. And of course, following that question, you should then also ask yourself the question of, well, when those buildings around my existing site are completed, yes. what happens to trade then? Well, what goes into those sites? Yeah. Indeed. You, you know, could well have... Is, to there, be... is there going to be more venues underneath those? Absolutely. Mm-hmm. So, it's, it's about trying to get a, a better feel for the overall picture of what's taking mm-hmm. place around you. Sure. Right? And I think that a lot of operators fall for the trap of thinking that their offer is significantly different and sufficiently better mm-hmm. that they will be able to draw people to them. 
because right. of who they are and what they do. Yes. Where do you think that comes from, Frank? Well, I think it probably comes from a, a level of a misplaced level of confidence. Sure. If you're doing really specialist niche offers, yes, then that might might be the case. Yes. But if you're doing really good burgers, yes, which are better than the guy around the corner, mm -hmm. but the guy around the corner's got all the foot traffic and you haven't, yes, and your prices are roughly the same, let alone that the guy around the corner might be you know slightly better value than what you. I mean, then you've got a real fight on your hands. Mm -hmm. People will find the value. Mm -hmm. They will find the value. So if you're going to go, as I say, off Broadway, off yes. the main yep. footpaths, mm -hmm. hopefully that means that you'll have slightly more advantageous rent. Yes. Right? Um, and then you've got to make sure that your offer is sufficiently compelling to get people around there. Yeah, of course. But it's not easy because you're talking about changing... Uh, people's behaviour. Yeah, and, and habits. Uh, and habits. Mm. And uh, you, it's not an easy thing to do. Yeah. When, when we've talked about, you know, doing the same sort of concept and stretching it out and treating everyone as a single one, why do you think brands like the Purveyor Group and Chris Lucas, who have got a multitude of completely different brands, all, you know, obviously there's a similar thread, but they are completely different from who they, what kind of demo they serve and what kind of price point they are. Why do you think they've been able to be either you know, relatively successful or extremely successful in those mm. markets? Do you mm. think that's purely just the experience of those owners and operators? or? Well, I mean, I think um, the, the really professional operators, the ones that have achieved significant success, they do their due diligence with a level of granularity yes. um, and attention to detail that most operators don't. Yes. Uh, I think the amount of effort that they put into establishing their venues is really, really significant. Mm -hmm. um, and the focus on the level of attention to detail all the way from the start of site selection Yep all the way through to actually getting the doors open. Yes, yeah. There's enormous effort and focus that goes into doing that. And um, all the good operators will place enormous effort and significance on getting the site right. Mm -hmm. Because once you, until you sign the lease, all the power is with the tenant. Yes. Once you've signed the lease, pretty much all the power is with the landlord. Yes. And the other thing is, once you're in the lease, it's, it's easy enough to get in. It's a mm. heck of a lot harder to get out. Of course. So you've got to make sure that you've, that you've got as much confidence as what you could possibly have about the physical location of the venue being the appropriate one for your particular offer. Yes. Whatever that might be. Mm -hmm. And also ensuring that the commercial terms that you engage in and that you contract for uh, those premises are sustainable. Yeah, of course. Because it's once you're in, you're in. Yeah, yeah, and it's very hard to get out. And it's very hard to get out, and mm. there's normally a fair bit of pain and suffering involved in of getting course. out. Yeah. And and I've sat on both sides of the fence in these things, and as much as I've been a tenant signing up mm -hmm. for big leases, and I've also acted for landlords yep. in negotiations with 
prospective tenants. Yes. And and certainly in both cases, I always ask myself the same question, and that's fundamentally goes to the sustainability of the business with the rent that's being proposed. Right. When we talk about when we talk about due diligence, what elements do you, does a person need to look at in order to understand getting a holistic view of due diligence? What kind of things should they look at when they look at a site selection? Well, I think certainly if you're looking at a failed business, yes, um, you got, the first question you have to ask yourself and hopefully be able to answer, yeah, is well, why did the business fail? Yeah. Now, if you've had some knowledge as to um, how they traded in as much as the standard of their offer and by that I mean the presentation of the venue, the quality of the food, the quality of the service, yep. all of those things you can draw some conclusions from that. Mm-hmm. Sometimes businesses can trade, appear to be trading well from the public's perspective Yes. because of what the public sees mm-hmm. but they're being mismanaged at the back end behind sure. the scenes so sure. they have effectively Profitless volume. Yep. Yep. A situation where for every dollar they take, they're basically losing ten cents. Mm. Yep. So this concept of profitless volume. So mm. you've really got to try and come to grips with why you think or what the key factors were as to why the business failed. Mm. Certainly, foot traffic mm-hmm. is a big one. Yep. I mean, car parking's an interesting one. I mean, a lot of people say that they'll never take on a site, um, but where you can't park. I mean, that, you can view that two ways because... Depends what the offer is. Well, indeed, that's precisely mm. what it depends yeah. what the offer is. Mm. And if it's if it's challenging to park... Yes. Well, it means that there's already people going to that area, to that precinct, right, which is what you want. On the other hand, if there's car parking spaces everywhere, mm. you've got to say to yourself, well, why is that why so? Is that so? Yeah. so mm. you've got to be very careful how you see these things. And mm. that... What we're talking about really when we look at all these things is doing qualitative assessment and analysis as to the various factors yep. as to why a business might fail. Do you think that would uh, the, the person looking to take on that lease should go into any kind of demographical studies or anything like that? Do, do they need to go that deep down or should they just view the site for a, as long a period of time as they can to try and understand what kind of people are around that area? Yeah, I think that... Um, Unless it's a major investment, yeah. um, then probably getting a, a demographic study or actually paying for one might be a bit of overkill. But that's yeah. not to say that you can't do your due diligence mm. on the internet mm. yeah, and ask the same sort of questions that um, somebody that you'd be paying to do the work would ask. Yeah. So there's a lot of information available. Mm. You also have to have a, a look at the businesses around you yes. to see what's working and what's not working. Yeah, of course. Uh, a friend of mine said to me many years ago, if he was the Chinese restaurateur, if he's going to have a Chinese restaurant, he wants it on a little bird street. Because he knows, yes, there's plenty of competition, but the people are already there. And they're already wanting that kind of cuisine. Yeah, well, well. they already want that. Yeah, yeah of course. Right? Yeah. Whereas you take a, I don't know, pick whatever you like, Peruvian or Indian mm. or any other mm. cuisine, you stick it in the middle of Little Bird Street. Yeah. How's that going to look to the passing parade? Yeah. Probably to most of them, not necessarily that attractive. Yeah. Yeah. So, kind of confusing. Yeah, absolutely. Mm. So you've got so you've got to understand, try and get a feel and understanding of what actually works in the area. Sure. Right. And learn from that. Do you think it's hard? Do you think it's hard for potential hospitality owners looking at a site to think about 
their lease as actually a five or a seven or a 10 year lease and not just look at what it's doing now. And the reason I say that is I think, let's say, let's say you go into a shopping center instead of a high street site and you're told by that shopping center owner that this development, this, this, this development is gonna happen and you get hooked in on what that development is eventually gonna bring your business. How far down the road should that person actually think about their business in, mm. that, in that sense, mm. do you think? Yeah, look, pretty good question. Um, when, you come to, when you come to value a business, mm. a significant asset is the quality of the lease. Yes. And, and the quality of the lease is determined by the favourability of the rent. Yes. Right? Yep. The other commercial terms regarding market reviews, etc., and mm. of course the length of the lease. Yep. In, in an ideal world, what you will do is enter into a lease um, on a commercial basis where the rent is sustainable mm -hmm. and, and the length of the lease, including the various options, mm. um, is long enough to allow you to get in there, establish, establish your business in the first couple of years, uh, and then if you do want to do something else which might dictate you divesting yourself of that, you've then still got something to sell because you've got X amount of years still left in the lease. Yeah. Right? Yeah. If you enter if you buy a business and you enter into a lease where there's only five years in the lease, yeah. Well say you've got trade humming along, it's two years down the track, business is flying and you think, yeah, I wouldn't mind selling. Mm. You haven't got a lot left to sell. Yeah, exactly. So, so at least you've really got to view it as, a, as an essential and a vital asset within your business. Mm. What, what's your feeling at the moment? Are you, when you're, when you're talking to clients, are you more happy that they choose a high street site or they choose a shopping centre site? Or does it honestly just depend on the concept for you? Yeah, gee, that's a, <laughs> <laughs> that's a good question, that one. Mm. Look, it's, um, it's so dependent upon the concept. Sure. Um, not all shopping malls are created equal. Yes. That's the first thing. And we're certainly seeing that where the, the very best malls are still trading pretty well and doing good business. Yep. Malls in general, though, are finding it challenging because yes. of the, you know, the, uh, the threat of the internet yep. and all the, uh, yep. the damage that that has done to in-store sales. Yes. So I think it really probably depends on the nature of your offer. Mm -hmm. um, to go into a strip shopping centre, certainly good, strong strip shopping centres, they still work well. Yep. Right? Yep. The difficulty with some shopping centres now is that whilst they continue to expand and increase um, footfall, yes. uh, and they're building a much bigger pie, or baking a much bigger pie, because the percentage of food in, as, uh, sorry, the number of food tenants as a percentage of overall tenants is increasing significantly, um, operators are actually having their slice of the pie reduced. Yeah, of course. So you've got a bigger trough, but a lot more mouse to feed from the same trough. Most definitely. And there are issues around that, and certainly a number of, a number of uh, uh, restaurants, chains, etc., both here and overseas have expressed their concerns around that. Okay. Uh, in general, um, I, I do 
scratching my head a little bit when I see people come out and talk about greedy landlords. Yes. Right? Yep. Um, because when you sign a lease, no one's holding a gun to your head, mm. presumably. It's still your decision. It's still your decision. Yes. Right? Yeah. Um, and to then try and abrogate responsibility mm. for the commercial arrangements you've entered into, mm. it's not a good look. True. And, and, it, and it doesn't wash with me. Certainly if economic circumstances at the macro level, yes. i.e. everybody in the centre, Mm-hmm. is affected yes right mm-hmm. then that's a different story and everybody is entitled to go back to their landlord and have a talk with the landlord about the fact that there's been I don't know the roads blocked off or it's been ripped up for three months or mm-hmm. you know the train stops being pulled out or all of those things um, a main access point to a complex has been blocked off and now all of the foot traffic in the complex is going around our part of the centre Sure. They're, they're all legitimate reasons. Mm. <clears throat> Just because your trade is less than what you'd like it to be, um, unless it's something directly the landlord's doing, I'm not sure that's a uh, legitimate excuse for asking for a rent reduction. Now, if you've been a good tenant, yes, right, um, hopefully you've got a good relationship with your landlord, mm. and if both you and he believe that the situation is... Um, only temporary, yes, and that you need some sort of relief, whatever that might be, either by rent abatement or reduction for a period of time to allow your trade to pick up again, then that will probably be in everybody's interest, including the landlord. Yeah, because of course. landlords don't want to have to um, relet tenancies. There's a lot of pain and suffering associated with it, particularly if, if there's rent arrears. Yep. Um, and it's it's not a nice situation for either the, the tenant or the landlord uh, to find themselves in where the tenant might be losing their house or whatever it is. Yeah, it's not a good look for the centre. It's not a good look for the centre. And, no. and I, I mean, I'm not suggesting for a moment that uh, major shopping centres are altruistic in their approach to mm. these things. Mm. But as a rule, they don't necessarily want to take your house. They'd rather find a way to just commercially... Make you profitable. Well, so you stay in the centre. Help you stay in the centre if mm. you've been a good town. Yeah, 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 agree. Yeah. You, so it's a two-sided two two street. Right? Exactly right. Mm. But if your business model is wrong... Yes, then whose fault is that? And whose fault is that? Right? And certainly some sites, um, for whatever reason, um, won't necessarily be food-friendly. Yeah, totally agree. Yeah, The discretionary spend might, might not be there or... And, and, and the rent that would be charged for the site is a, a perfectly uh, justifiable yes. um, rental for what the value of the building is, right, yes. on past usages. Yes. But those past usages might have been fashion or something other with much greater margin and turnover than what your hamburger joint's got. Correct. Yeah, most definitely. So you've got to be careful that mm. um, even though it's a great site, Mm. that the sheer quantum of rent involved is just too... that it's not too much yes. for what your concept is. Yeah. And that comes back to having a sustainable occupancy cost ratio. Of course. I want to talk to you about that in a minute. And the reason why I asked that question was because you wrote a really good article last year regarding the, the percentage of food exploding in, in shopping centres. And with the pullout of brands like Sumo Sales last year taking them outside of all, all Westfield locations in Australia, I thought it would be... Uh, a pretty pertinent question because 
there are a lot of what you see in shopping centres is a lot of franchise brands rather than first off brands, and it's it's a it's a hard market out there. Like mm. it's very challenging, and I think if if food becomes more than forty percent or fifty percent of the tenancy mix, it's going to be hard for everyone to make mm. money. So therefore, that uh, extra rent that you're paying for the footfall that's coming through the centre really isn't justified. Mm. So that's where my head was at, at the moment. Yeah, look, it's it's a challenging one because mm. if you look if you look back, say, twenty years or more ago, shopping centres, the, the anchor tenants were like the major department stores, yeah. the major supermarkets, yeah. etc. Yeah, all big box. Yeah. And as I wrote in that article, mm. um, the food operators were looked at as parasites. Yes, feeding off the foot traffic generated by yeah. the majors. Yeah, of course. Well, my how the world has turned, right, mm. to the point where, as we've seen probably for about the last 10 years or more now, mm. that the smart developers have looked at leading independent food and beverage offers yep. as being traffic generators for their sites. Yes. Right? And that the major shopping centre developers now have you know, fully integrated leisure and entertainment precincts. Mm-hmm. And... This is at a time when we see things like department stores, um, you know, possibly seeing a complete exodus of them from, from a lot of complexes. Yeah, yeah. So there was a shift from the department stores to independent food and beverage, mm-hmm. and here we are now, probably ten years down the track, where I think that we've surely got to be getting close to peak peak food. Yes. In a lot of these complexes. Mm. What's the next thing going to be right, that's actually going to, going to drive people into the complexes? Right? And I think that one of the fundamental things that has been historically overlooked and the better developers address it now to a certain level yes. is they're now taking a much more holistic approach to what their shopping centre means mm-hmm. and looking at it more as a place-making exercise mm-hmm. and, and the shopping centre becomes truly like the local village. Right, yeah, you know, of course. Yep. With childcare facilities and all sorts of amenities yes. to give people a whole lot of different reasons to go there, mm-hmm. right? Service things. We're seeing a real focus on... Uh, experience retail, service retail, as well as food and beverage, because the standard goods and services are under so much threat, under so much pressure. So I think the best developers are now very focused on trying to make their their centre as complete a village as what they possibly can. Yeah, for sure. Relevant to their location. Mm. Relevant Mm. to their location. Mm -hmm. I mean, if you look at... Uh, for example, Crown Casino as a leisure and entertainment precinct, that's about as good as what it's going to be for a casino. Yes. Right? Yep. If you're talking about a great regional centre, something out in the suburbs like Ringwood or places like mm-hmm. that, then you'll see the likes of Westfield, QIC, etc., putting together these complexes with so many more elements to them than historically what they've had. Yeah, so you can have all round trade. All yeah. round trade? You know, all year trade. And, and I mean, one of the great things that I saw. Uh, Last year, I just thought it was a terrific initiative was by QIC out yep. at um, Ringwood yep. as a way of trying to stimulate foot traffic during the winter months 
um, they put up the big ice skating rink out oh, in, in, the in, in, the, in the town centre. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And and they tied it to a promotional activity where people who spent a certain amount of money with the food and beverage traders in the square, yep. well, they were able to get a free free, free ice skating. Yeah, yeah, that's great. And as a thing for the community, as a thing for the traders, yep. that was a, just a great thing to do. It yep. was a classic example about how everybody won out of that. Yes. QIC won because their tenants would do better. Yes. The community won because they got to a value, a significantly value-added offer by yep. way of quality food and beverage with free ice skating. Yeah. Yep. Now, the only people who might have suffered with that example would have been if it had been a nearby skating rink. Yeah. <laughs> because all of a sudden all their yeah, trades moved absolutely. down the road. Yeah. But that's an example of, of something which you know speaks to the consumer's want for value and the centre's need to create a reason to be there, yeah. a reason for purpose and a relevance to the community. Yeah, most definitely. Um, last question I'll ask you, Frank. We talked about um, the red ratio of... Of projected sales when you when you talk to clients what do you pitch to them as what your your expectation best in class is of that percentage as turnover yeah so so as a rule what i would say is the higher your labor model yes the lower the percentage needs to be okay mm -hmm. that makes sense and so, for example, if you're at the fine dining end, and, by, and mm. I'm talking, you know, high level service, high level service, very expensive way to go. Yeah, and you've probably got white tablecloths yep. and linen and all yes. that sort of stuff. Yep. You probably want your turn, you probably want your occupancy cost ratio to be around three percent. Wow. Now, that's how, that's, that's low. Yeah, well, that's yeah. how low it needs to be. Yeah, yeah. On the other hand, if you've got a relatively low labour model. Mm. So you're in the food court. Yeah, yep, yep. Don't right. service tables and all that kind of all thing. All of that type of stuff. Yep, yep. Then that will vary anywhere from 7 to 12. Mm -hmm. And I'm talking um, not just the percentage rent, but the on costs as well. Like of course. Marketing levies, etc. Yeah, et which people often forget about, especially yeah. in shopping centres. They certainly do. Yes. And it all adds up. Yeah, most definitely. It all adds up. So then you can draw your own conclusions in terms of all the other stuff in the middle that's going to be somewhere from... Three through to you know twelve or even up to fifteen. Yes, in some instances. Yeah, if you've sure. got a, a beverage lead offer, mm, mm -hmm. a beverage lead offer which is has got basically minimal or no food. Yes, and you've just got people pouring drinks. Mm. Yeah, then you can sustain those. It can high. be higher because it's it high profit be, margin. Yeah. It can be higher, right? mm, mm. and it's just important when you go into those things to understand what those right ratios should be. Yeah. Uh, in the old days of um, rent for good restaurants, um, rent being sustainable at around 10% for yes. full service. Yep. Bye -bye. Yeah, they're gone now. That's, that's all gone. Yeah. No yeah. more. Because wages have come well, back to where they, just, where they should be. Right? Well, everything's just sort gone up. Everything's just gone up. Yeah. And yeah. it used to be that wages were referred, rent was referred. Yeah. Uh, sorry, not rent. Um, food costs were referred. Yes. Yeah. Well, now there's a lot of pressure on food costs to get that down. Most definitely. Wages are no longer a third. Yes. Yeah, now, industry average says more like high 40s. Yeah. Right? Yeah. So, and the consumer doesn't want to pay anymore. No, of course not. And so, there's more offers, so it's hard yeah, to do exactly. that. Exactly. Mm. 
So, you know, the, the savings have got to come from somewhere and mm. uh, that's why you know, rent is an area where it's got to be, you've got to get it right at the start. Most definitely. Mm. Don't sign too early. Don't sign too early. Otherwise you'll wind up with Cafe Chernobyl. <laughs> And it'll blow up, and no one will want to be able. No one will be able to go there for twenty five years. I love that, Frank. Um, Frank, thanks so much for joining me again. What's the best way for people to get in contact with you if they want to have a chat? Uh, they can look me up on LinkedIn. Yep. Yeah, just send me a message. Yeah. Happy to talk from there. All right. Or they, uh, if they want to follow some of my social media ramblings on Twitter, they can follow me on the Frank Report. The Frank Report. Love yeah. it, Francis. Thank you so much. Thanks. Appreciate your time. Thanks so much for tuning in for another episode of the Open Pantry Podcast. Uh, Frank was fantastic on that podcast as we talked about all things leasing. I hope you got a lot out of it. As always, the best way to contact me and let me know what you think is just to follow me on Instagram under Open Pantry Consulting or hit me up on my email, Sean, S-H-A-U-N, at openpantryco.com. We'd love to know what you think and have a great day. Till next time, take care.